0: For the which cause also thank we God without ceasing because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us ye received it not as the word of men but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually also worketh in you that believe those words of 1st Thessalonians 2:13 still challenge each of us to give consideration to just how special a book it is that maybe is resting in your lap at this moment it is in fact the unsurpassed and unmatchable word of God isn't it As we lift it so highly and look forward to studying ourselves, giving thought to the preciousness of what's in it, and certainly the guiding that it provides us safe travel through this life in preparation, of course, for the one hereafter. As was mentioned a moment ago by Gary, we are thankful that each of us have been given the opportunity to assemble tonight, thankful that things are well enough with us to permit us to come together even as we are now. You may have noted in the bulletin, as well as on the wall to my left, that tonight's lesson is going to be somewhat unique in that we're going to turn our attention to the Jordan River. And as we do that, we'll first of all have before us some thoughts that might be prompted by these considerations. The Jordan River, interesting, isn't it? The Bible makes mention of a whole host of rivers, Even from the book of Genesis, one finds mention of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and especially the Euphrates will be mentioned many more times in the Old Testament. In addition to them, we rather readily thereafter arrive at that very special and productive river in the nation of Egypt. When we encounter the book of Exodus, we so readily appreciate what a central fact of existence for the nation of Egypt that that river was. And by the same token, quite frankly, it continues that way even to this day for that nation. Beyond those two rivers, though, there is that famous Arnon River associated with the region of Gilead on the eastern side of the Jordan River. We do find two others I chose to mention among the many that might have been. There's that famous river in the book of Ezra, the Ahava River. And there's, of course, also that oft-mentioned river in the book of Ezekiel, the Kibar River. To say all of that is to say that the Scriptures on so many occasions make reference to these landmarks, these flowing sections of water. However, to mention all of them does bring us to the title of the lesson tonight and, in fact, to the point of discussion. All of those rivers, as noteworthy as they may have been... Quite frankly, they all pale in comparison to the importance of the Jordan River. In fact, as one makes note of how often it's mentioned, the significance it attaches to it, the circumstances that surrounded it, it would still be rather safe to say it is by far the most famous river in all the world, the Jordan River. Why might that be? Why is the Jordan so famous? far more than these others we've mentioned, even more famous than so many others with which some of us may so well be acquainted. I would invite you to begin a series of studies, and it'll be a rather brief one admittedly, but beginning tonight, you and I will take a look from the biblical perspective of the Jordan River, revisiting some of the marvelous scenes that took place either on her banks or in the waters of it, and be reminded time and again how significant that passage of water was, and what meaningful lessons still reverberate in our minds 20 centuries later as it relates to the Jordan River. It is with all that in mind that I'd like to begin with a question, a question that maybe has already occurred to each of you. You'll notice a moment ago that I made note that quite likely the Jordan is the most famous river in all the world. I feel fairly safe in making that statement, but even if it's one of the most famous, That still leads to this question, what is the reason for the fame of this river? There might be some that would be quick to raise several objections or maybe even comments. First of all, could it be asserted that maybe the reason for the fame of the Jordan River is for the commercial traffic that she upholds? After all, we do know the Mississippi River has, in fact, tons of commerce that, in fact, are buoyed upward on her waters. Is that the reason for the fame of the Jordan River? The answer is no. I think it's safe to say there's not a single commercial barge or ship that has ever traveled the Jordan River. That's not the reason for the fame of this one. One might also argue, is it because of the large volume of water that in fact empties into the Dead Sea as a result of the movement of the Jordan River waters? After all, there are some rivers, such as the Amazon River, arguably the Mississippi as well, that literally dumps hundreds and hundreds of tons of water a day. However, that's not true of the Jordan. That's not the reason for the fame of the Jordan River. In fact, the Jordan is far, far swamped by all these others in terms of her movement of water. Is the fame of the Jordan due to the length of it? You and I know other rivers like the Nile trespass over hundreds, in some cases even thousands of miles. That's not true of the Jordan. Amazingly enough, the Jordan River is not even a hundred miles long from where it starts until its terminal point. Less than a hundred miles, and yet arguably still the most famous of all of them. Is its fame due in fact to its usage for irrigation purposes? After all, we know that Egypt would be a barren desert were it not for the overflowing irrigation of the Nile. Is that the same true of Jordan? It is not. The Jordan, in fact, is almost never used for irrigation purposes. Is it due to large cities that rest on her banks? It is true that many rivers have their fame due to that reason. The Thames River that in fact has London on its banks. The Rhine River that meanders its way through Europe and many major European cities on its banks. But isn't it interesting not a single major city rests on the banks of the Jordan River. One by one we've eliminated all of these considerations. What then is the reason for the fame of the Jordan River? Any Bible student could quickly give at least two answers, and we shall look at them in some detail as the series unfolds before us. But I'd like to invite you to at least for a moment consider one initial set of thoughts about the unique geography associated with the Jordan River. I say unique because I think as we discuss this briefly, you and I shall discover and find that this aspect alone is worthy of enough to keep a geologist busy for a lifetime the mere geography and unique at that of the Jordan River. Typically, wouldn't we expect that a river has its headwaters or its origin in some rather high plateau and then the water makes a rather gentle movement to a major ocean or at least a large sea. But as we find the Jordan, we find some uniqueness. The Jordan River has its origin as it relates to Mount Hermon. That mound is mentioned a time or two in the Old Testament, and we recall the special scenes, especially due to the snow-capped heights of that mountain range. And so it is. It is that snow melts there on the top of that. It results in a number of streams, all of which converge and actually emanate into what you and I recognize as the Jordan River. Now, it does it in a somewhat interesting way. Mount Hermon has an elevation of slightly over 9,000 feet above sea level. That thought alone challenges us in the following way. As those streams emerge from the melting snows on that mound, they gather in a rather small lake, again, that rests at a fairly noteworthy elevation. That lake, as I've tried to point out, is named Lake Hula, H-U-L-E-H, And amazingly enough, that lake actually exists very near the place the New Testament will identify as Caesarea Philippi. That very place, our master asked this pertinent question in Matthew 16, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter, in that rather aggressive fashion, ultimately said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those events transpired very, very near this lake that will ultimately become what you and I recognize as the Jordan River. It is for that reason that you'll notice that this lake actually has an elevation that is only slightly above what you and I recognize as sea level. Remember, we noted a moment ago that those, that Mount Hermon, some 9,000 feet elevation, but by the time these streams have converged, we are now at only roughly 100 feet above the level of the Mediterranean Sea. As you think about that with me, in a moment we'll try to look at some more features. But to build to that point, I would ask you to think about these comments. As those streams come together at that lake, there is an emergence from that lake, and that emergence is called the Jordan River. This river precedes a movement in the direction south and for the first 10 miles of its journey. It meanders its way downhill, of course, and comes to a sea that you and I recognize as the Sea of Galilee. That sea so often mentioned in the pages of the Word of God, especially in the New Testament, for we find a significant amount of fishing that took place, of course, upon its waters. I would invite you to notice one of those interesting features. The elevation of the Sea of Galilee is some 700 feet below sea level. So from the time that that water has begun its journey, you'll notice it has fallen over 800 feet in descent to the Sea of Galilee. It's no wonder then that that water can acquire a fairly noteworthy current as it is pulled downhill by the force of gravity that significantly. However, as the Sea of Galilee occupies such an important role, our discussion must move onward. For we notice that from that Sea of Galilee, there's a continuation. Of course, the headwaters or the waters continue to flow out of it. As they make their journey southward, some 65 miles they in fact proceed in the direction south and ultimately the empty end of that sea known as the Dead Sea. As you think about the nature of that elevation, it perhaps is noteworthy here that this is the lowest point on the surface of the globe. The Dead Sea, with its elevation of 1,300 feet below sea level, you'll notice is such that here you are a roughly two-tenths of a mile actually below the height of the Mediterranean Sea. That alone, again, is very intriguing to any geologist at least. But as you think about the nature of it, that Jordan River, the Dead Sea into which it empties, and the characteristics of that section of land on the surface of the planet, all occupy our attention somewhat briefly. And I would invite you to look very quickly at a map. Here's a map of that region of the world. And as you'll notice, very much near the top is the actual location of Mount Hermon. Those streams that come together and converge at that little sea up near the top known as the Sea of Galilee. And then from there, the 65-mile journey to the larger Dead Sea there near the bottom of that map. All the while, as we think about that again, consider the length of that so much less than the other rivers we mentioned previously. Here is another picture attempting to illustrate the topographical matters of it. You'll notice that that's drawn in such a way that it gives us an impression of the large depth to which the Jordan River Valley actually exists and the existence of both the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea and the large and steep cliffs and mountains that exist on each side of it. I suspect that alone gives us a renewed consideration of the difficulty surrounding the children of Israel's passage through that Jordan River. Remember, they had to climb down one side and out the other. It was not nearly as trivial a task as you and I might initially have thought. Beyond the nature of that Jordan River and the characteristics of the cliffs existing on each side, that, of course, does bring us to also see the following. Here is a picture of at least one small part of the Jordan River. You'll notice that it isn't nearly as large as, say, the Mississippi, if you've ever driven to Memphis and crossed the Mississippi there. It isn't even as large in many ways as the Cumberland River here in our local community. But yet this river has occupied the thoughts and intents of Bible believers for centuries. I wonder again about the famousness of it and what the Holy Word of God reveals to us in ways that can remind us of some lessons that can be so beneficial and helpful. You'll notice that picture might also be looked at in another way. Here's yet another picture that shows the rapid movement of that water again. At certain places, it was a very significant and steep downhill grade. It's not surprising the water could obtain quite a speed. And you'll notice the steep cliffs on either side of it. Clearly, one had to be very aware of where those were because you couldn't just cross the Jordan River anywhere. It had to be done at only those places that would allow such a thing to transpire. When we consider furthermore the nature of the Jordan River, we now come to the second part of the lesson this evening. It's not its geography that's the primary reason for its fame. Although that might have something to do with the mind of some, you and I realize that far more significant in the reality of the fame that goes with it are the events that have transpired either near it or on it. And I would invite you to use the rest of our time tonight to at least think about two of the events as revealed in the Bible that have taken place on the banks or inside the waters of the Jordan River. I might suggest to you that we'll use our next lesson next Sunday evening to go beyond this and look at another of the major features for its famousness. For right now, look at just a few of the things that you and I might mention together. A moment ago, Brother Glenn read for us from the third chapter of the book of Joshua. And it'll be to that chapter I'll invite you to return with me for the next few moments as we think about this major event that transpired here at the Jordan River. Let's try to set the stage as to how that took place. The children of Israel, of course, left the nation of Egypt. They had been captive there, and in fact, in those later years, they were under great and hard bondage and rigor. The Egyptians had subjugated them to abject slavery. However, finally, the God of heaven in answer to their prayers not only brought them a deliverer in the form of Moses, but also, in fact, rained plagues upon the Egyptians. And when the time was right and proper, after the tenth of those plagues, the children of Israel did leave with a mighty hand. They left, in fact, understanding that God had made that provision possible. And as they departed, they began to wind their way through the wilderness. They, of course, moved their way first to that place, and they finally crossed the Red Sea. But ultimately, as they made their way to Mount Sinai... And God, of course, delivered to them that marvelous set of laws that was to be their guide in the years to come. We well remember that as the book of Exodus brought all that before us, many details were, of course, therein provided. But it's true that that people had been already told that they were to inherit that land that God had promised to Abraham. That land that had been so powerfully described and its boundaries delineated centuries before they were to inherit it. And so as they looked forward to the reality of that inheritance moving in the direction, they would wander some 40 years in that wilderness, ultimately arriving at the eastern shore of the Jordan River. And as they arrived at that place, having moved their way through regions of Moab and regions of Ammon and regions that were also located east of the Jordan, all the while that Jordan River was there, of course, as the dividing point that was to take them, to that place that was to be their homeland. As they arrived in these books of the Old Testament and they're encamped at the eastern side of that Jordan River, quite frankly, it brings us in such detail to the book of Deuteronomy. We find in 32 chapters of that book a marvelous exposition of a people basically encamped just east of the Jordan River. The entirety of the book of Deuteronomy takes only a few days And as that people were there located, keep in mind that the place that they were looking for, the place that was their inheritance was only a short distance away across that Jordan River. As they espied it, as they considered it, as they in fact thought about it. Keep in mind as it was that close, we remember that their leader, Moses, he of course passed away in the closing chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. I mentioned chapter 32 a moment ago, and in that chapter we have a record of the marvelous song sang by Moses not long before his own death. We do come, though, in chapter 34 to an actual record of Moses' death. In that rather brief chapter, we remember that God had given him instruction to, in fact, climb the mountains of Pisgah. That, mount, that was a section of Mount Nebo, and so Moses did exactly as God had commanded As he climbed that mountain, I would invite you to notice a few of these comments. Remember from that cliff-like structure we had noted a moment ago, the people would have been able to watch Moses walking on the top of those mountains. Maybe, in fact, the silhouette of the sun would have been behind him as they watched their leader making his way toward the last place they would ever see him. You'll notice that as he climbed that mount, Mount Pisgah, and was given by God a marvelous blessing of looking over into the land from that cliff-like position. He saw that well-watered plain of the Jordan River Valley. He saw the land that lied just across the Jordan and the land that this people whom he was leading was to inherit. As he witnessed it and observed it on that very mount, of course, Moses passed away. And on that very mountain, of course, God buried him. With that particular blessing of his life, we then come, as Brother Glenn mentioned earlier, to his successor, the one who at this point was to lead this people across the Jordan River. His name was Joshua. He had already been selected, of course, by God and trained and tutored by Moses. He, however, was told in Joshua chapter 1 not to turn to the left or right hand from what God had revealed, but rather he was to be strong and courageous because just as surely God said, "'As I have been with Moses, I will be with you.'" That set of promises leads us to some of the thoughts during the bottom of that slide. But remember, one of the things, and in fact, the major obstacle yet awaiting was this Jordan River. The people were going to have to cross it if they were going to arrive in that land that God had in mind for them. But the crossing of the Jordan, I would invite you to think with me for a few moments about some of the statements found in Joshua 3 that paint for us a picture in which this crossing wasn't nearly as straightforward as you and I might initially have thought. The crossing of the Jordan there at the bottom brings us to a little comment that is parenthetically stated in Joshua chapter 3, verse number 15. I'd invite you to read that verse and I'll try to highlight the thought of what's so parenthetical about it. And as they that bear the ark were coming to Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of harvest. And there stated so innocently, but yet one that will now be the object of our discussion for the next few moments, we find that this season of the year, the time of the year, in which the children of Israel were now upon the eastern banks of the Jordan, and thus were in need of crossing, This was the season of the year in which the mountain snows had led to an overflowing of the Jordan of her banks. That, of course, happened on a rather annual basis, but this season of the year made the crossing of the Jordan far more difficult. A difficulty, perhaps, that might be highlighted like this. Think again as the steepness of the grade, the gradient, if you please, of the Jordan River. Picture it with me for just a moment. As this water, of course, flows downhill, the steeper is the grade, the more forceful will be the movement of the water, and the far more dangerous and treacherous the crossing would be. At this season of the year, it's all the more noteworthy. For as that water had overflowed its banks, there would have been debris, a significant amount of it in that water, perhaps brush and shrubs and various trees and rocks, all being swept along by the powerful force of the water." as that water, of course, was making its way such a downhill grade. That leads me back to the statement that was read earlier, verses 7 and 8. God said to Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And at least at that point in the chapter, we might all have asked the question, what was God going to do that day that would be so magnificent and so fantastic and that would embed in the minds of Joshua and all the people of Israel that God was with them? What transpired? May I suggest to you it was the crossing of the overflown Jordan River. I've tried to highlight at least for some thoughts in the following way. It would seem that by the statements that God set forth, there in verses 7 and 8, that He intended for Joshua to appreciate that what was about to take place will be a lasting sign, that it would be an overwhelming reality that I am with you, for otherwise this could not take place. Apparently, something was going to happen that only God could do. Mankind would have been unable to do it. No structure of man would have permitted it. No ingenuity or creativity of man would would have allowed it. Apparently what was to happen that day was a noteworthy testimony to the existence that God was with His people just as He had been with Moses. May we pause for a moment and say, as you think about the Jordan overflowing its banks... I'm told that when that happens, remember that Jordan River Valley had a rather significant width, at least outside the actual vein of the Jordan itself. And when she overflowed her banks, it made for a rather much wider location that had to be crossed. And here was perhaps two and a half, three million people or more, not including all the animals that needed to get across that river. And it had overflown its banks. Our God chose the time of year this season and this series of events to teach to that people that He was with them and that as long as He was with them, all would be well. The crossing of the Jordan perhaps reminds us, at least momentarily in passing, of some of those lessons that should be a challenge to us. There are some things that only God can do. Although man is skilled in many ways... And although He's knowledgeable and has discovered much and perhaps even invented many things, there still remain some things that only God can do. The beginning of this universe is one thing. And although one could speak from now until the rest of his life on the greatness surrounding the series of events in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit has remained for us in two rather brief chapters the origin of this universe and all the findings of man will never set it aside, and all the discoveries of man will never wage war against it in a successful way. The Holy Word of God stands sublimely inerrant. With the nature of that Word of God in the creation, think about the various miracles that are read throughout the nature of the Word of God. Only some things God can do. Those things, of course, lead us to see a host of Old Testament realities and one of them is this crossing of the Jordan. By his own ability, Joshua couldn't have done this. The finest scholars in ancient Israel could not have allowed this to take place as it's described because you and I notice that God took care of it easily, beginning in verses 15 and 16. We notice that God miraculously stopped the waters of that Jordan and although they piled up on in heap... Downstream they proceeded to flow so that the children of Israel crossed on dry ground. They didn't have to worry about the debris. They didn't have to worry about the boulders and rocks and other things that would have been present. All that was necessary for them was to keep in mind the reality associated, of course, with making safely into and out the other side on dry ground what our God had done. That was to be a timeless and always remembered matter in the minds of the children of Israel. We crossed an overflowing Jordan River. In fact, at this point, wouldn't it be interesting to ask? There were enemies to Israel awaiting on the other side. Later, Joshua will lead the people into that land and the people of Jericho and I and the whole host of other cities. They fought against the people of Israel. Have you ever wondered why? Weren't those people waiting on the other side of the Jordan to get them when they come up out of the, of the riverbed? Here's the reason why it would seem. Those people didn't think this was the season to cross the Jordan. The Jordan had flooded. This was the absolute worst time of the year to possibly think about crossing the Jordan River. No wonder they hadn't prepared any armies waiting on the other side. They would have thought it would have been highly foolish to even try to cross the Jordan now. But they didn't have God on their side. Can you imagine in the surprise of the people in Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, didn't they admit that, all our people are afraid of you? Why were they afraid? Because Israel had crossed an overflown Jordan River. The people knew how frightful that was. The people of that land knew what a terrible thing it was to imagine the powerful force surrounding that water. But God's people didn't have to worry about that. They'd crossed on dry ground. Doesn't it remind us that some things only God can do? Some of those things you and I imagine that, of course, God has done throughout the nature of what we see only tells us. I couldn't help but mention this book again that you and I so dearly hold. Although man has written thousands and, yeah, even into the millions of books, there's none like this one. There's none that unfolds the mind of God like this one. There's none that detail the character of what lies beyond the grave like this one. There's none that sets before us the nature of sin and godly living like this one. Is it any wonder that Psalm 119 verse 128 says, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. That word of God, of course, is such a comfort to all of us as often as we turn to its pages and find solace and strength and comfort, as often as we turn to its pages and find direction and guidance in times of indecision, it of course is a blessing beyond description. Is it any wonder that perhaps finally we might be so shocked when we admit that there seemingly are so many who refuse to acknowledge it? They refuse to acknowledge God. They refuse to acknowledge His Word. They refuse to acknowledge not only His existence, but that of which He's capable. In cases like that, we can only be reminded of what Paul did say in 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 and 21. Those last two verses of that book of 1 Timothy, we find there where even Paul admitted that there was false knowledge. That is to say that knowledge which is not truthful. Men may often think they have their ideas and their conjectures and their hypotheses, but isn't it still the case that any time it disagrees with the Word of God, men are wrong, they're mistaken, they're involved in discrepancy, and their thoughts are fraught with error. That kind of thing reminds us only some things can God do. And His provision of the Word is still a fantastic blessing, isn't it? No wonder Jesus Himself could remark about the nature of that word in John 6, verse 63. The words that I speak unto thee, they are spirit and they are life. That kind of life and that kind of power perhaps brings us to yet another episode that occurred on the banks of the Jordan River. This one we will go forward several more books and rest eventually in the book of Second Kings. It is there that we have, of course, passed many, many years from the days of Joshua. But yet when we arrive at the books of Second Kings, we learn that the prophets were in full force as often they would be. There was Elijah who labored so powerfully opposing the Baal worship of, the, of that era. He who opposed Jezebel and the works of Ahab. He who, in fact, had been so powerful in his stance in First Kings 18 However, the days of Elijah were waning to their conclusion. His successor, a gentleman named Elisha, was one who will, be, who will take center stage in this particular text before us this evening. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, Eli- Elijah's departure was something that he himself recognized was at hand The God of heaven had informed him in some way and this information rested so interestingly upon Elijah. But not only that, Elisha knew it as well. We find in this chapter that Elijah had in fact requested three different occasions for Elisha to go to a certain place. One was Bethel, one was Jericho, and one was the Jordan River. Each of these instances, Elijah pleaded, in essence gave order to Elisha, go to this place. But in each instance, Elisha would not go without Elijah because, you see, he knew that that day Elijah would be taken from him. As we come to this second chapter in 2 Kings, we notice especially the moment had arrived. And we notice that the mantle of Elijah as he himself was taken away in a chariot of fire, a whirlwind if you please, that mantle ended up falling to the side and being left behind. You'll notice that Elisha picked up that mantle. And just as surely as it had been used not many moments before to part the Jordan River, in the same way it had happened back in Joshua 3, Elijah took that mantle, spread it up somewhat over the Jordan River, and it parted for he and for Elisha that day no doubt bringing to mind the great events that had transpired in the days of Joshua several years earlier. And now, with the waters having come back together, Elisha picks up the mantle and again he touches the water and again it parts for him, reminding him that the power that had rested with Elijah was now going to rest with him. He too would be blessed to be the spokesman of God, able to oppose the idolatry and error of that day, Enabled to stand strong and bulwark in defense of the truth of God. This gentleman, Elisha, as you'll see at the bottom, doesn't it remind us of this? That Elijah, the one who was taken away, who seemingly was so special in the mind of God, who in bravery and in majesty and encouraging in, in might, who had opposed with such power all the opponents of falsehood and idolatry. Here he was taken away without death. But yet this Elijah we notice reappearing, by name at least in a number of later passages. Malachi, for instance, in Malachi 4, makes a special mention that Elijah was yet to come. But yet, are we not given record that he had already departed? And in the New Testament, on many occasions this elijah is mentioned again but there jesus clears up any possible misunderstanding doesn't he in matthew 11 verse 11 he says elijah is john the baptist this one who came in the spirit and power of elijah is the very one who is the forerunner of the christ the voice of one crying in the wilderness the one described in john 5:35 as a bride and shining light this john the baptist perhaps then reminds us interestingly about an interesting lesson that I've tried to very briefly state like that. Elijah was taken, wasn't he? Taken in a way similar to what we recollect Enoch back in Genesis chapter 5. As he was taken in this whirlwind, we immediately notice that his reappearance later The issues and events that surround his mention remind us that there is a realm beyond. It's not visible to our unaided eye. It isn't visible now to where we can touch it if you please. But it surely exists with all the interest and with all the reality with which the Bible invests it. It really is this place. The Bible, the New Testament, so often calls it Hades, this realm of departed spirits. When you and I think of that realm, may we never forget, Jesus said in Revelation 118, I have the keys of death and Hades. The Lord Jesus Christ has the keys of it, and the day will come He'll unlock it, and out of it in the general resurrection will come all the spirits that have ever inhabited it. And when they come forth, of course, re-inhabiting bodies prepared for them, the great and general resurrection will therein follow. Don't you want to be ready for that day? Don't you and I want to make sure we're prepared for the eventuality, the keys being used to, in fact, unlock? We do learn later this place will be destroyed, Revelation twenty fourteen. That destruction perhaps reminds us all of eternity awaits, of course, for those either in that beautiful place called heaven or that tragically awful place called hell. Control, though, of that which is beyond rests with you and me in all the language reminding us of what happened in Second Kings 2. There, as Elijah departed, the work of Elisha went on. You and I, as we think about the placement in which we are, we too, of course, think about those that depart our way. You and I don't see them any longer here. But when they've made their preparations and you and I so interestingly have made ours, we look forward to the grandest reunion of all time. The reunion of all the faithful of all the ages described in Revelation 7. That place in which we see an innumerable host gathered there because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7:14, And they're able to echo and joyously sing the beautiful hymns forevermore on there beside the blessed sea of glass described in Revelation 13, 14, and 15. The song of Moses and the Lamb. Are you able to sing the song of the Lamb tonight? You'll notice that as we look forward to more consideration of the Jordan River, we will come to the New Testament and focus our energies there. But for tonight, we've already learned some rather interesting features about the Jordan. Not only its geography, and not only the set of events surrounding that which is in Joshua chapter 3, but also the one in 2 Kings 2. The parting of the Jordan took place in both cases and God made it happen both times. He is able to part you from the drudgery of sin and remove it from you by forgiving it, if you'll only allow Him to do it. The crossing of the Jordan is a significant thing in many ways and we will revisit it next time as well. But for tonight, as we each analyze our life, where do you stand before the presence of the God of heaven? Are you a faithful Christian? Are you one who is devoting your life day by day to the service of the one who died for you? If not, then may these lessons tonight challenge you to make some changes while the opportunity and the time is yours. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth in the words of Proverbs 27, one, This evening, if we could be of assistance to any individual who would desire to, in fact, rededicate your life to the the Lord, or to come initially and become a member of the body of Christ. Only God can do those things. I can't forgive you. Our eldership here can't do it because you've sinned against God, you see, in the words of Acts 5 verse 4. Will you not then allow Him to forgive you and meet the terms which He has delivered to you? If that is the need and the desire of your heart tonight, we'd be delighted to assist you. This opportune time is given. Brother Adam going to lead us in this song in just a moment. If you've never become a Christian, you need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You are required to repent of your sins. It is essential that you make a confession of the nature of Christ and your devotion to Him as the Lord of your life. And then, of course, you must be baptized for the remission of your sins. In that way, walk faithfully until death. Revelation 2 verse 10. If you have stumbled along the way and have not been faithful, why not come back tonight, make petition unto God, allow us to pray with you. He's promised upon that particular set of events and your repentance thereof, He will forgive you. Won't you come this very night? And if we could be of assistance, let us know in the way we can do that. If at this point that's the need of your life and your desire, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?